Well, I just love singing about His love. <laughs> and I like the, um, all the words that, are, that the Lord Himself puts in there to help us kind of have a sense of it in terms of depth and height and width and so forth. And it's like He's really um, inviting us to just really test that, meaning you'll see that it's, it's higher, it's deeper, it's wider. And, uh, and nothing makes that statement more than what we have in Christ, what we have in our salvation. In fact, um, Martin Luther once said, a man cannot be thoroughly humbled until he comes to know that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsel, endeavors, will and works, and is absolutely dependent upon the will, counsel, and pleasure of another. In other words, Luther was saying that we have an incredible salvation. Now, that's actually the theme of our message this morning. Just how incredible our salvation is. And we're in First Peter 1, so if you would please turn your Bibles, open them up to First Peter chapter 1 and the 10th verse. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage that we're going to study. So you read quietly and I'll read it. Aloud, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now I use the word incredible because it has passion in it. It has emotion. It has um, intensity. And as I was reading through this text, that seemed to me to be the sense of what he was trying to get us to be connected to was the passion and the emotion and the intensity of our salvation. Notice in verse 10, it is something to carefully search out. In verse 11, something to cause a seeking to know. Verse 12, something to announce. Verse 12 again, something that makes angels long to look. All of that is intense, passionate language. I told you last week that salvation is really Peter's subject in this whole chapter. It's on his heart. Why is it on his heart? Well, he's turning to this as a theme for a few reasons. First Peter 5, one reason is because he's pastoral. I mean, Jesus didn't just call Peter to be a preacher. He called him to be a pastor, John 20. Remember that? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. He told him to do this. Make sure you go care for souls, he said. Make sure you help people. Make sure you deal with people where they're at in terms of their sufferings and their struggles and their, where they're at emotionally. People that are, you know, sheep that are getting beat up and going through tough times. And you encourage them with this, Peter. Remember your salvation. In fact, up until now, it sort of has been um, intellectual. But in these three verses, he gets emotional. 
He says, I want you to think about how incredible salvation is. Focusing on salvation is the way to encouragement. No matter how hard life is, it is not a darkness that is greater than the hope in light of salvation. I love how John MacArthur saw Peter looking at this section. He said, quote, Peter is celebrating salvation. And sometimes for Christians throughout the history of the church, there has been little else to celebrate, end quote. Yeah. I mean, you read the history of the church, and oh boy, I've told this to you before. Um, It would be well worth you going back over, if you haven't done this before, but reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. Man, why would I want to read that? That would, it seems like that would make me depressed or make me kind of go, oh, man, I hope that doesn't happen to me, you know. I think it's helpful. I didn't realize how much, uh, <laughs> what I was doing totally when I, we, we for a while in our home, uh, we, we had Fox's Book of Martyrs as a, a read-along in the morning. And so we would read this after breakfast, and then the kids would go to school and just kind of wide-eyed like, okay, what's about to happen? Something's going to happen here. But I tell you, it's helpful. Historically, the church, as he says, has had little else to celebrate except its salvation. Now remember, remember our last verses, all about joy. You put it in the context of this whole chapter, and the reason for the inexpressible joy is because of the incredible salvation that we have. Listen, this is something that I believe our Lord would have us deeply meditate on. It's what a wonderful word, too. Salvation. Even the word itself expresses hope, doesn't it? Salvation. It's our word, Christian. The whole Bible is preoccupied with this word salvation. Psalm 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah 2, verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. 2 Timothy 1, 9, who has, caught, who has saved us, that has given us a salvation according to his own purpose from all eternity. It is a purposeful salvation. And in the first letter, 1 Timothy 2, 4, who desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. And notice he puts the word desire right next to salvation. He desires for all people to be saved. This is a word of passion, a word of, uh, of emotion, desire. He desires that. It reminds me of Ezekiel 33 where it says, I do not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's just another, that's a negative way of saying the positive, of positively saying 1 Timothy 2.4. If he doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, that means he desires greatly that all men would be saved. It is a subject for all times, for all generations, for all peoples, and one that God has a mission with. He desires it for all people. How does God save people? He gave us the way, Jesus Christ, right? He gave him as an offering for us to get salvation, right? And then Romans 10 tells us that God has called preachers to tell sinners about this salvation. That God is willing to save sinners who come to him. What an important thing for us to really get out there. God is willing to save sinners. God is willing to save sinners who come to him. that he has enough mercy for them. And that's why they preach repentance. And so salvation is the main subject for all generations. God has provided for it through Jesus Christ on the cross and in resurrection. And then you remember verses 3 through 5 that it is the groundwork for our praise and our worship that we worship joyfully and loudly with great passion because of this one thing, salvation. 
just, I've, I've encouraged you to do this, but I want to keep encouraging you to do this. Read Revelation. And notice all the expressions of worship there. It is not quiet worship where you kind of go into the closet and you, you know, uh, where you're kind of making melody just in your heart in this quiet sort of way. You see worship that is just pushed out to the limit expressively singing about this one thing, salvation. Now we have to dig a little deeper about this, so let me show you from the whole Bible that this really is the subject in all of the Bible. Maybe you can write some of this stuff down, but just follow along with me as we work through this here. First Chronicles 16.23, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. He says, sing. He says, get excited. Fuel your joy with this. His salvation. Psalm 96, verse 2. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Notice, every day. Every day. Man, what do I focus on this morning when I pray? Focus on your salvation. Should I sing a song? Yes. Be excited about that. Be excited about that. In other words, in less than a day, you might need it. That, I mean, joy can, can go that quickly, right? I mean, we all know that. What gets it back? The joy makes salvation the subject. Now that's got to be our focus, beloved. You have to see how incredible our salvation is. And it's incredible for a lot of reasons. In other passages of Scripture, it has, it's had a different focus. It's incredible in Romans, for example, for its theology. So we talk about the theology of salvation when we read Romans. It's incredible in 1 Corinthians for its wisdom. And so he talks about that he connects wisdom to our salvation. It is incredible in Hebrews for its superiority over any other religious system, even including Judaism. And Peter says, I don't want you to get excited in looking at this salvation from man's point of view. We could talk about how wonderful it is to us. So this section is very different from this standpoint. What we're going to get is the perspective and the view of four divine agents, their perspective of salvation to us. And at the very end, I'm going to invite you to join them in the very joy that they have. Peter says, I don't want to look at this from man's point of view. I don't want to look at it through the experience of man, but through the eyes of the divine agents of our salvation. Now, there are four of them, four diverse divine agents, living agents, divinely directed, and I'll give them to you. We're going to learn about the Old Old Testament prophets. We're going to learn about the Spirit. We're going to learn about the apostles. And we're going to learn about angels. And for all of them, salvation is their subject. In fact, it's not one of many subjects. It is the subject for all four. It's really fascinating how Peter puts this together and hopefully I can convey to you some of what is here so you can get an idea of what Peter is trying to teach us. Now how incredible is the subject of salvation? We're talking about how the Old Testament prophets viewed salvation, how the Spirit viewed it, how the apostles viewed it, and finally how the angels viewed salvation. So let's start with the first one. It is the subject of the prophet's study. Salvation is the subject of the prophet's study. Study. Notice how salvation is this subject that they study as we go through all 
four of these, we need to keep reminding ourselves why Peter is telling these believers this. He's telling them this so that as life gets thrown at you and there's insult and there's pressure and there's persecution, that you have something significant to hang on to, an incredible salvation. So start with the first four words. Take a look at them, even in your own Bibles, where they're written there on on the notes that we have for you. As to this salvation. You see that? Now, in verse 9, he just mentioned salvation. And he mentioned it in verse 5 also. As to, listen, he's like he's saying, I've got more, I've got more to tell you about this salvation. He says, I've been talking about salvation. Okay, so let's now talk about it. Let's now focus on it. I want to tell you something about it. Well, what? What do you want to say, Peter? Well, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. About what? The salvation. What prophets is he talking about? Old Testament prophets. And they searched out something. What? Their own writings. Isn't that interesting? They searched out their own writings. You say, well, they know what they wrote. Well, they know the words, but they don't under, didn't understand them. Remember, those words were given to them by the Holy Spirit. And what were they searching for? He tells us. Salvation. They wanted to know more about salvation. They wanted to understand salvation. Sometimes, you know, we... I think we kind of get ourselves a little bit mixed up. Say, wow, I wonder if, how were the Old Testament saints saved? Same way. He said, did they really get into salvation like we do? Yeah. Yeah. This is the verse tells us that they did. The promised salvation that they were writing so much about, that's what they wanted to know about. They, they looked into the fact that salvation is the greatest subject in history. You know, there there really is nothing worth studying more. If you've ever said to yourself, I, I really like to have a study. What can you can you guide me? Can you direct me? What should I study about? Well, I'm just gonna let Peter tell you. Salvation. Study it. Know it. Understand it. Get a scriptural view of it. They did. There's nothing worth studying more. That's what all the Old Testament prophets pursued, understanding salvation. It's such a fascinating place to be for them. Now think about it. They were able to receive salvation there in the Old Testament without ever really understanding it. You get that? They had it. They just didn't understand it. You say, is it possible to have something that you don't understand? Sure. I'll tell you. Uh... I remember when somebody began to speak about justification. This was probably four, three, four, five years into me being a Christian. And I'm saying to myself, I don't remember ever hearing that word before. Can you be a Christian without even hearing that word before and knowing that word? Sure. Sure you can. But it caused me to want to know more. And then, of course, as I started to study it and learn it, oh, yeah, I do believe that. I just didn't know it was called justification. So here they are. They, they, it's just amazing. I mean, they, they are trying to understand something that they have, but they don't get it without... I mean, they, they had salvation, but they didn't understand how it was accomplished. They were trying to understand it without understanding who it was tied to. So the process, the means, the the person, God gave them the information and it just raised their quest. And in some ways, even though we have more sight than them, that's what the Word should always do with us, right? It should always raise a hunger or a passion, 
a quest in our hearts to know more. And that's where they were. You say, what didn't they understand? To put it simply, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't understand how salvation was tied into that. Now, there was even more that they didn't understand. They also didn't get the mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3, right? Remember that? And in that, he talked about the mystery that the Jew and the Gentile could be one. In fact, he even says it in chapter 2 that they become one body. It's a mystery. That is that salvation would somehow include the whole world. Now, let me say something about this here. That's why all those statements in the Gospel of John are so important. Did you know that? That God so loved the world that He gave His Son? Why? Why is that important? Because salvation was only connected to the promise made to Israel in their minds, but in, you know, in their writings and the prophecies the Lord gave them, clearly He was saying it would involve the whole world. How? One word, and they got this word. Look at it there in verse 10. Here's what they prophesied about. The grace that would come. Grace. The salvation is by grace. How is grace connected to salvation? Well, let's start by saying this about it. It is bigger than salvation. Grace is bigger than salvation. When you're talking about salvation, it has to do with the act, right? The act. God's action, that is, in rescuing sinners. So that's the act that we're talking about. Now listen, when you're talking about grace... It has to do with the motive. Salvation has to do with the act. Grace has to do with the motive. That is God's reason for rescuing sinners. What is His reason? His own love. God's plan, God's accomplishment, all of that is amazing. But even more amazing, God's motive is grace. Love, mercy, and grace just sums it all up. You say, but I thought that grace was a New Testament idea. Well, I mean, you know, maybe you think to yourself this thought. I mean, isn't the Old Testament all about God's law and separation and wrath and judgment and all that kind of stuff? Isn't that Old Testament stuff? It is. You see, yeah, then the New Testament is grace, right? No. No, that's a wrong understanding of grace. The biblical God is a God of grace in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I want to show you this, okay? The main difference between the Old Testament and New Testament, let me give you one word and this will help you, okay? It's grace same grace Old Testament is the same grace New Testament. So we say, well, what's the difference? Why have a, an old and a new? Why not just say testament? Here's why. And it's the word fulfillment. The New Testament is the fulfillment. And maybe to say it a different way, it is the fuller picture. By the way, that's the word for fulfillment conveys that idea of fullness. It is the fuller picture. That's why in John, Jesus is called the fullness of grace. Now, there are lots of places that we can go to see this, but let me just point to a few. And uh, you might want to turn there. I, had, I don't have the class this morning turn here, so, uh, so if this sounds a little bit you know, like a repeat for the class, uh, I'm sorry. But maybe you'll get a little more. All right, here we go. Exodus 33. Now, I want to take you there because this statement is repeated over and over and over by the prophets and in the Psalms. 
And I believe that this captures the God of the Old Testament. Verse 19, God says to Moses, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. I, he says, I'll make all, all my goodness pass before you, God says to Moses, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Now, why does God say that last part to Moses? Is he struggling with that? Well, the people have sinned greatly against rejecting the Lord. And at this point, you have these people and they made a golden... Moses was up on the mountain and he was receiving word from the Lord and he comes down and the people had made a golden calf and they're worshiping it and they're having orgies and they're just going wild. And so God tells Moses, I'm going to punish these people for this. Moses says... Because God says, I'm going to punish them and I'm going to wipe wipe them all out. I'll make a new people. Don't worry about it. Moses says, will you please forgive them? God says, I'll be gracious to whom I want to be gracious to. That's what he says there in Exodus 33. In other words, it's not about your plan, it's about my plan. Moses, you can't tell me whom to save. That's not you. It's not up to you. But by the way, in case you're tempted to question my grace, chapter 34, verse 6, then let me give you the reason. And God proclaimed this to Moses. Moses asked God to show him his glory. He says, I will. And when I show you my glory, you're going to get the reason for why it is I do what I do. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished and so forth. By the way, that is repeated all over the Bible. You can see it repeated in Daniel 4. You can see it repeated in Psalm 145 and so forth. Nehemiah, same thing. Now all that means is that at the core of who God is, there is this truth, that He is gracious. And He demonstrates that grace by forgiving unworthy sinners. Listen, and by being patient with the ones that keep sinning. You say, how is He being patient with them? By not smoking them right away for the rebellion. That's how. Right? I mean, we're all worthy of that. But God is full of grace, and that's the point. He is willing to forgive, see. And we see this repeated all through the Old Testament. Same thing in the Psalms. So much grace. And I, I really am um, biting my lip trying to give you the short version. Okay, here we go. How about, how about remember, okay, let's just talk about no, uh, Jonah, okay? Remember Jonah? He is saved, but as a prophet, he ran away from God. He did. Do you remember the reason why he ran away from God? I'll let you tell him in his own words. All right, so God sent Jonah to preach repentance to the wicked Ninevites, tell them God is coming to visit them. And Jonah says, okay, and he runs away, right? As though God can't see him. And he's thinking, I'll just take the fastest ship out of here, right? And so he then tells us, I mean, Jonah's running away from the mission. And so then he tells us the reason why in chapter 4, verse 2. I fled to Tarshish. By the way, he's telling this to God. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. What does that sound familiar? He's like, I know, I'm a student of the Bible. I know Exodus 34. I know that. And I, I believe that about you. 
He said, what a terrible prophet. It's like, come on, be an evangelist. Isn't that amazing? To be an evangelist and to know when I preach the word, God's going to save people. So how do you know that? Because he said he would. And he wants to use me to do that. And he, what he's saying is, I knew it because God is gracious. In other words, I knew you would love to let go of any desire to punish people for sin because you're full of grace. That's why I ran. Jonah believed that salvation should stay with Israel. I mean, we're special. Let's not share this thing. I mean, hey, keep it in the family, right? Us four, no more, shut the door, right? God said, well, I want to, I want to expand the family. And I want it to include, let's see, those guys. The Ninevites. Oh. Jonah says, but they're the enemy. In fact, he says this, I knew you'd save them. I knew you would. I knew you would. Now, when he says that, he's not saying, you're just doing that to despite me. Don't be so full of yourself, you know, Jonah. No. He's saying that because he knows who God is. God of grace. And you know, you read Isaiah, especially from chapters 40 to 66, and God just keeps revealing himself as God the Savior. Do a study on that phrase, God the Savior, in Isaiah. It's everywhere. Isaiah 43.3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He goes on to tell them he's the Savior of all nations, chapter 45. And then in chapter 55, listen to this. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Doesn't that sound like Jesus in the New Testament? Come. Matthew 11, John 7, come. Isaiah 55.3, listen, that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him, <coughs> that is David, a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. What's that all about? God's grace. That's him saying, I have a plan to demonstrate my grace to more people than just Israel. In fact, way more. Verse 6. Watch this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon and on and on it goes and it's just grace all over the place do you see who the invitation is for he says it is for all everyone Everyone can come. That's the grace that would come that the prophets searched to understand, a salvation grace to come. And that's what they studied. Now understand this very simple. Very simply. You can boil the prophecies of coming salvation grace down into two categories. There is suffering grace and there is successfully triumphant grace. Psalm 22, suffering Messiah, Isaiah 53, same thing, suffering servant. And then you have prophecies where you have the successfully triumphant Messiah in Psalm 2. And uh, and he's, by the way, ruling with a rod of iron in Isaiah 9. The government's going to rest on his shoulders and so forth. You put those two thoughts together 
And then you get the prophecies about a saving Messiah that was coming. In other words, they could see that. That's what they studied. In fact, that's the passage, um, Isaiah 61 is the passage that Jesus opened up and read in Luke 4 to refer to himself in these very ways. The reason he could do that is because that's how the Jews understood Isaiah 61, a coming Messiah to save his people. And then you look all over the places in the New Testament where they just quote from one prophet after another about salvation. It's all over the place, beloved. In fact, if you wanted to see this, um, maybe just write this down. Romans chapter 9, actually 10 and 11, just do the whole deal. 9, 10, and 11. But what I would encourage you to do is pay attention to how many different Old Testament texts that he uses. And in particular, prophets. Let me give you just a really quick look. Verse 25, quoting Isaiah, excuse me, Hosea 2. I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who is not my beloved, beloved, they shall, they shall be called the sons of the living God. Who's going who's to be called that? Gentiles. And so we, you learn there that salvation is to the Gentiles. Is that something that the prophets could see and understand that part of it? Yeah. Yeah. Chapter 9, verse 33, quotes Isaiah 28, same thing. Chapter 10, same thing. He quotes from Joel, chapter 2, verse 11. Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That was was Joel, chapter 2. Romans 10, 15, he quotes Isaiah 52, 7. In Verses 18 through 20, he quotes from Psalm 19 and Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 65 when he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Should we be shocked that Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ? No. He said they would. They knew this. And you can see the same thing over in Romans 15. For time's sake, we won't go over all of that stuff. But all over Romans, he just quotes one prophet after another prophet. Now, when the prophets wrote all that stuff, they didn't have what Paul had when he wrote Romans, right? And so they took what they wrote and they just studied it to try to understand salvation grace. Grace of it extended the Gentiles to all the world, right? Chapter 3, verse 18 of Acts. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. That's what they studied. Now, let's get back to our verse here, First Peter 1.10. He says, the grace that would come to you who? To believers, right? And by that, he means Jewish and Gentile. Okay? Grace was their subject. And they studied it from their own writings. And by the way, that's what good studying does, right? I mean, you find the main subject, and then you see how, how it affects everything. Okay? That's good studying. That's what, you, everything around it, you want to see how, how it affects. You, you bring in the greater context. You kind of follow the thread, right? That's, good studying does that. So you're able to identify what the subject is and you follow that subject all the way through. Well, he found it. They found it. They knew what the subject was, grace. And they tried to follow it all the way through. It says they made careful search and inquiry. And these are two words in the Greek that actually mean a similar thing. Intensive searching out. Rogers and Rogers Say this, quote, the two verbs taken together give emphatic expressing to the earnestness with which enlightenment was sought, end quote. 
Yeah, so it's really, so why does he have two words? Because I think he's putting emphasis on this kind of search. Like this was intense searching. This was not just them going, well, I've got nothing to do today. I've, uh, you know, I've went, you know, rebuked people over here, you know, kind of guided these people over there. And I've said a few little blessings over here to some people. I guess I'll just read stuff and see if I can figure some stuff out. They, this was the main emphasis. They knew it, it was, there was a future Messiah to come and it would be a salvation grace that it was bringing and they wanted to understand that. And again, we can't underscore just what this tells us. The prophets of old were consumed with one main thing, salvation. How grace connected to salvation. How the suffering of a Messiah connected to salvation, how the success of a triumph connected to salvation. Now to give you a taste of their searching, let me quote from Daniel 7. Write this down. There are a few other places to go, but I'll I'll use this one to show you. Okay, verse 11. Then I kept looking. He's talking about what the Lord is giving him in a vision of prophecy. I kept looking. I was searching, verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed. It was distressed within me and the visions in my mind, they kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. Daniel was no different than all the rest of the prophets. They had stuff, they wrote down stuff, and oftentimes they shrugged their shoulders and said, "Uh, I know this is about salvation grace, but I, I don't know how. The Lord gave Daniel so many things that he just didn't understand, and what you get through all his interactions is that Daniel wanted to understand it all. You know, sometimes it even made him sick that he couldn't get it. But I'll tell you this, he understood the seriousness of it and it never made him stop. By the way, the seriousness of it, I believe, is what made him sick. Jesus told us about Daniel and the prophets and their desires with all the prophecies given to them in Matthew 13, 17. Mark that one down. Matthew 13, 17. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and they did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So what did they do? They had these limitations, but they didn't stop studying and it wasn't because they were curious. Again, get that thought out of your mind. Oh, they probably were just these curious people. No, they weren't curious. That wasn't what drove them, curiosity. They, they studied to know about salvation tirelessly because they believed that salvation was tied to uh, grace. Now, what exactly did they want to know? He tells us. Look again at 1 Peter 1, 11. Seeking to know what person or time. The who and the when. Tell us the who about salvation and tell us the when. When is this going to happen? Who and when. the who and when about salvation grace, about the Messiah. Notice not what work would, what his work would be. They're not not concerned about that. Why? Because they they already have a pretty good idea of that. They, they, They sort of get the work. They just don't know who it is and they don't know when it's going to happen. And you know that kind of searching trickled down to the people too, by the way. John the Baptist came around in John chapter 1 says that the people wanted to know, well, who are you? Remember that? They actually said that literally. Chapter 1. Who are you? 
And by the way, John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. Did you know that? And you remember he, he got in prison. And he was locked up for a while and he came to prepare the way for the Messiah. And, and John 1, he encouraged his men to go and follow Jesus. And remember this, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. You go follow that guy. So that's wonderful. Yeah, then he was put in the slammer. You remember that? And while he was there, Matthew 11, verse 1, actually verse 2, reveals what was on his mind at the end of his time. He was about to die. And while in prison, Matthew 11, 2, he heard of the works of Christ, and he sent word by his disciples... And when they, his disciples came to Jesus, they said, Hey, John has a message for you. Verse 3, here's John's message. Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? What's John asking about? Who and when? That's it. That's all he wanted to know. Who and when? We as prophets, that's all we study. Who and when. And in that question, what is John asking? Who and when about the Messiah? Are you the expected one? And is that time now? Every prophet wanted to know that. I mean, do you you remember how Jesus answered him? I love this. Go and report to John. It's like, I, I, I think Jesus had so much smile when he probably said this. It's like, oh. I'm going to encourage him. I'm going to give him such an answer. He's just going to be ready to to die, to go be with the Lord. He's going to love hearing this. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So why? how is that an answer to John for the who and, and the when? Because that's Isaiah 35. And you know what the prophets concerned themselves with, wanting to know? The who and the when. And what he's telling them is, tell them this, and then John himself will be able to tie a string from Isaiah 35 to me. The very thing that the prophets wrote about and studied, it's happening right now, Jesus says. All right, so that's the first divine agent, the Old Testament prophets. The other ones, these are way quicker, I promise you. (laughs) Here we go. You say say that all the time. I know. But they are. Okay, secondly, it is the subject of the Spirit's inspiration. Now, what's the subject of the Holy Spirit's inspiration? Salvation grace. He wants us to know what an incredible salvation this is too. Verse 11, the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now some see this as a lower case S for spirit. I don't believe that is right. I believe it is a capital S how we should understand spirit here. The NAS has this right. It is not his spirit like a an attitude or something like that. Now, what was Jesus like before he became a man on this earth? Before the incarnation? Spirit. Sometimes you have what's called epiphanies. And an epiphany is where he came to this earth. And it, you know sometimes he's called the angel of the Lord. That's an epiphany. But he doesn't have a body yet. And that's the whole point of the incarnation. Luke 1, John 1. Now what was the focus of the Spirit in the prophets? The Spirit of Christ within them was, 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 was who Jesus was in the Old Testament, and the Jesus of the Old Testament was pointing them to two things. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And we touched on this already. Sufferings of Christ. Places like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12.10, Zechariah 13.7, Psalm 69. 
Or how about the one from Daniel 9, verse 22? Daniel, I've come to give you an in, you know, insight with understanding, Daniel. About what? Verses 24 to 27. The person and the timing of the Messiah. Oh, that sounds familiar. The person, he calls him Messiah the Prince. The timing, 62 weeks and then the seven weeks. And that fits with what we learned earlier, right? But notice, he will be cut off. What's that? The sufferings of Christ. And he's also called the Prince. What's that? The glories to follow. You go earlier in Daniel chapter 20, excuse me, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, and it is all about the glories to follow, his kingdom. What are the glories, his reign as king? And you bring in Psalm 16, and you can say part of his glory is his resurrection. That's another glory. And you bring in Isaiah 9, it's more glory and Psalm 16, which speaks of his coming out of the grave, it's more glory. And that's always the summary of the Christ. Sufferings and glory. Sufferings and glory. Cross and exaltation. Propitiation and praise. Substitution and supremacy. That's the subject of the Old Testament prophets. And isn't that what Jesus was telling the disciples in Luke 24? Remember this one? Jesus was walking with his, with a, came up to a couple of disciples, and they were on their way on this road towards Emmaus, a town. And this was right after Jesus was raised from the dead, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer? these things and to enter into his glory. There it is. The beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Oh, you say, if only we could know what he told them and what he talked about. Sometimes you hear people say that. Wouldn't it be great if you We already know. Peter tells us. He talked about his sufferings and his glories to come. That's what he talked about. Just incredible. That's the takeaway from the prophets. That's the focus for him in his inspiration, that is the spirit with the Old Testament prophets. Back to verse 11. Notice the word indicating. It means to make something plain. What are they making plain? Sometimes when you, there's a word prediction here, predicting, and I don't think that's a great translation because the spirit never predicted anything like he was rolling dice or you know, all right, I predict this is going to happen. That's not. He never guessed. He testified. He announced. Literally, the word means to witness beforehand. He saw and knew the sufferings and glories to come, and he put it into words for the prophets to write down. That's what he did. By the way, that's always been his process. Later in Second Peter one twenty one, Peter says it this way, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Moved by, borne along, like a wind that hits a sail and just guides a ship or a boat, and it's moving along in the course that it needs to go. The Spirit in them moved them to write about two things, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to come about Christ. Go back and read the prophets and notice they always come under those two categories. Always. That's the direction that they're going. The sufferings and the glories. And by, by the way, it's everywhere. You can find even little verses like this one. Proverbs 14.33 before honor comes humility. 
2 Timothy 3.16. So Scripture was breathed out by the Holy Spirit, and it was breathed out from the Spirit, speaking through men to write it down, just what God said to write down. Now, why were they doing this kind of service? Were they doing it for themselves? Oh, man, that's a great thought. I've got to write that down. Come back to that. Read it later. No. This is marvelous. 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. I know you, you guys don't get this, the Spirit was saying to them, but it isn't for you so much. It is for them. You say, for whom? You're serving a people yet to be born. You'll never see it in your life, but it's for them. You know what I love about that? It never kept them from searching and studying. They they kept studying. They knew that. They knew it was for a people down the road. Hebrews 11.13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. They welcomed the ministry to serve us, even knowing it would always be distance for them. Isn't that good? That's love. It was for our time and not theirs. You say, so did their prophecies have any benefit to them? Was it only a benefit for us? I, I, I believe it greatly benefited them. And I think that it increased their love for God and it, because it made them anticipate. And by the way, no wonder you get to the New Testament and you have people like Simeon and Anna. And what are they doing? They're so excited. In Luke chapter 2, they're looking. Or how about the Magi in Matthew 2? And it just amped up their joy and worship and anticipating what was to come. All right, so in the subject of salvation, grace, you have the prophet's study, you have the Spirit's inspiration, and thirdly, it is the subject of the Apostles' proclamation. Salvation, grace is the subject of the Apostles' proclamation. Verse 12, In these things which now have been announced to you, stop right there, in what things? In these Old Testament prophecies. The Spirit's work, salvation, grace to come that tells us about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to come. They were announced through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Who is that? The apostles. This is apostolic witness. The New Testament preachers of the gospel. You go back and read Acts 2 with Peter and Acts 13 with Paul and 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 about preaching. And what you'll see is it is still about the who and the when of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ Jesus crucified. Today, if you hear His voice... Turn to him now, the sufferings. They say, that, that's why in Acts chapter 2, after Peter preached, he said, repent and do it today. Do it now. That's the when. The sufferings and the glories to come. Preach the cross. Preach the glory of Jesus. Tell people how the cross connects to dealing with their sins to forgiveness of all sins. Tell people about how because of the resurrection and the ascension that Jesus sits on a throne for us to bow down to. Tell them about the Lordship of Christ, the glories to come. That's the apostolic preaching of the cross, beloved. The sufferings and the glories to come. One more divine agent for this incredible subject. Fourth, It is the subject of the angel's interest. Verse 12 ends this way. Things into which angels long to look. Now that word to look means to stretch forward the head around a corner to see something. It's a very fascinating word. It was used actually of the 
disciples when they came running down and they looked into the tomb to see if Jesus was in there. Peter and John, John, John chapter 20. The word for long to is the same word as lust, epithemia. Strong desire for something that is usually prohibited or unfulfilled. The angels have, now it can be used in a bad way, it can be also used in this way. The angels have an unfulfilled desire when it comes to salvation grace. Say, is that okay? Are they still holy? Yeah. And they can have this desire? Yeah. Tell you what, it's what keeps things exciting in heaven for them. They love it. Like giant fireflies, you know, just buzzing around and so excited, all lit up, right? Now, what do the angels have strong desire for? To just get a sense of understanding of redemption, to see it, to see a person saved. Luke 15 says the angels rejoice in heaven at the repentance of one sinner. They don't even know what that feels like, but they love it. They can't experience salvation. They are locked into an eternity of holiness for good, for the good ones, and for the evil ones, and they're locked into an eternity of damnation. Now, when you think about the angels and their involvement in salvation, it's incredible. They were at the birth of Jesus at Luke 2. They gave the news of his birth to shepherds. They sang about it at Luke, in Luke 2. They were present at Jesus' temptation. They were present at his agony in the garden. They were present at his resurrection. They were present at his ascension. And they will be there when Jesus comes back. They make sure that salvation gets to us, Hebrews 1. And in Ephesians 3.10 it says that the angels take in the manifold wisdom of God to the church when it comes to redemption. They're watching people get saved and they're learning more and more about salvation grace. And it is a great big mystery to them. And you know what? They love it. And I think sort of, I think part of the reason was got to be because they were always reflect God. So if the, it says the angels rejoice, you following me? They love seeing sinners get saved. They love salvation grace. You say, is it envy? Is it coveting? No, it's rejoicing. It's marveling. And I'm going to end our time with this picture from Revelation 5. And if you want to turn there, you can, but just listen. The angels can't experience our salvation. Okay? But it doesn't stop them from trying to get as close to salvation grace as possible. And I can give it to you. I can prove it to you from this picture in heaven. Who's worthy? It starts with this in, in the very beginning. Who's worthy to open the seals of the book to the book? I mean, this is something that's said in heaven. And then what, what happens? The lamb is. The lamb is worthy. Now, what is the seal? For What, what are we talking about? The way the seals are, are papers, and they're sealed up. And in this case, they, there are seven of them, because there are seven seals he goes on to talk about. And these are the title deeds to the earth. Jesus is the ruler of all, and that includes the earth. Who is worthy to open these the title deeds to this earth? Well, the person who it belongs to. Who does it belong to? The Lamb who is slain. Verse eight. Verse verse eight says, Twenty four elders fell down before the Lamb. In verse nine, they sang a new song, and it's called the Song of Redemption. And by the way, if you want the lyrics, I got them for you. Here we go. Worthy are you to take the book and the break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, and you purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Wow. All right, well then verse 11, here come the angels. And many gather around the throne 
And here's what they say about all of this. Verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb. This is the angels. That was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. In verse 13, the Lamb is on the throne and everyone begins to praise Him and wish Him to have blessing and honor and dominion forever and ever. And who do you think the word everyone includes there? The angels. What could those angels possibly get excited for? What motives do they have? Let me ask this. What motives are all this worship with us believers? What are the motives? Salvation, grace, and they love it. And let me just tell you this. We should too, right? As I conclude here, let me ask this question. Do you still get excited about salvation? Are you amazed? Or have you become indifferent and, and numb? And apathy rules. What a great day today to repent of that. How do you do it? Just reflect on the salvation that we have. Rejoice in salvation grace. First Peter 1, 10 through 12. You know how you get to back to that place? Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you and meditate on it. It is what they did. They carefully searched to know the who and the when and then came the worship. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you and thank you for always granting us more than what we deserve and even more than what we can handle and take in. And I I love it that it overflows that way because there's enough to splash over that, that, uh, that, that I can keep continue to come back over and over and over and over and find new things to be so excited about when it comes to the salvation grace that we have in Christ. Would you, Lord, please just increase our joy in this and we would just express it, even though it's inexpressible, it says in First Peter, but we don't want it to stop us from just continuing to come. Thank you, Lord, for giving us so much. We praise you and want to offer our worship in song right now. Pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.